We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a grandmaster, a chess journalist, an author, and a professional cricket better. Um, our guest, Jonathan Levitt, isn't as active in chess as he used to be, but he wrote or co-wrote a few great books, Genius in Chess in the 1990s, Secrets of Spectacular Chess, He also uh, with David Freegood. He co-wrote Bobby Fischer, The $5 Million Comeback with Grandmaster Nigel Davies, and I am Malcolm Payne. And in the past year, while he was quarantined and unable to practice his trade, he wrote a non-chess book that has been just recently been released here in the U.S. called Contemplating Comedy. It's kind of a fun meditation, a collection of jokes and one-liners and kind of a philosophical treatise, I would say, about uh, comedy and, and life in general. And I'm excited to discuss all of his work as well as his career in and out of chess. 
Um, but before we welcome him, I did want to plug one event. This is a non-paid plug, but shout out to Tim Wall of uh, the UK. Since we have a British grandmaster joining us, I did want to mention for listeners that on July 18th in Trafalgar Square in London, there will be a big chess festival, um, which I encourage any British listeners or anyone inclined to travel to attend. I always love those big outdoor chess festivals. There'll be lessons, blindfold chess, simul, all that stuff. And I will put the link for that in the show notes if anyone's interested in checking it out. So with that out of the way, let's welcome our guest, Grandmaster Jonathan Levitt. Jonathan, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Ben. And uh, thank you for having me on your on your show. Uh, quite an honor to appear on your show. I see you've got a fantastic back catalog of uh, people who have come before me. And uh, my privilege to uh, to be here to, today. I should mention that the chess festival you're... Um, you just mentioned is uh, open air in Trafalgar Square and uh, Malcolm Payne is heavily involved in the organization and I think he's giving a blindfold simul as well uh, on the day so plenty of um, action to be had for all chess uh, people people who've watched the Queen's Gambit might want to just turn up and have a game with a grandmaster or master and uh, it should be a lot of fun for everyone involved and should be COVID safe given it's um, open air. Yeah, it sounds good to me. I think I've mentioned on the show before that uh, Chess in the Schools, which is a, I know that Malcolm Payne's uh, organization in London that does a scholastic outreach is involved in the Chess Festival, and Chess in the Schools does one in New York um, every year, a big outdoor blitz tournament that's just, I haven't made it in a few years, but it, it takes place in Central Park in the U.S., and it's one of my favorite events, so I love that sort of thing. Um, Jonathan, will you be attending? Um maybe i'll I'll see how it's going um it's a, a small trek from from where i live in ipswich to london it's uh, takes a couple of hours each way so um certainly it's a possibility but it depends yeah. if i'm feeling same. well and if it's a nice day and a few other factors yeah yeah it's the same for me in new york often a game time decision especially uh with kids at home and um and before we get to your career tim actually mentioned tim wall mentioned that you're actually you're good friends with malcolm payne you guys go way back yeah we we jointly wrote a book uh, as you mentioned the bobby fisher uh, five million dollar comeback book um yeah i've known malcolm for what must be um 45 years or more now so uh, i'm 58 and i knew him as a ch as a child so yeah we lived in a close to each other in north london at the time and uh, he's been uh, instrumental in building up the british chess scene uh, over the years and is one of our main organizers and journalists um, and is a strong player as well of course yeah impressive and owns the uh chess I'm going to forget the name of the shop, but the chess shop in London as well, yeah, right? The chess and bridge shop, I think it's called. Um, also, uh, of course, uh, the, the school's um, project that he's been working on for the last few years is, is really quite an enormous thing and is helping to spread the game, uh, well, nationally and internationally. So it's a fantastic thing that he's doing there. But anyway, enough about him. What about me? <laughs> well, not quite enough about him because I have to say I'm impressed with the blindfold simul. So well into his 50s, uh, he's he's able to do a blindfold simul. Um, do, do you think you could pull? I know you're not as active as you used um, to be, Jonathan. But do you think you could pull something like that off? Um, I have I've played a blindfold simul before when I was at school about um, when I was about 15. Uh, so I, I, I could probably do it. Um, I wouldn't like to try though at this stage in in life. It would be 
taxing and uh, demanding, and I'm not quite sure the benefits would uh, justify the effort. By the way, um, I got an email from Tim Wall, which mentioned that blindfold chess, where Malcolm Payne will take on people blindfolded. I think we're just assuming that Malcolm will be blindfolded rather than the people he's taking on. But... <laughs> right, yeah, that's, that would be my kind of, speaking of comedy and chess. Yeah, that would be my kind of blindfold, Simon. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's very funny. Um, and, you know, hearing you talk about giving blindfold simuls, which I think uh, listeners will know, but basically just means... Um, you're playing a bunch of people and you're not even looking at the board. And more traditionally, when we're not joking, the participants are looking at the board. So not only are you playing uh, many people at once, which is a handicap, but you're picturing multiple boards, which is obviously a huge handicap. And for, for listeners newer to chess, I definitely recommend you Google Timur Gureyev. He was on the podcast talking about his breaking of the world record of playing the, uh, the most people simultaneously blindfolded, just uh, staggering feats and actually, uh, Jerry Wells and I did a book recap of the book called Blindfold Chest. So if you want to dig into that subculture, there's lots to do there. Um, but let's leave that there for now, because um, what I wanted to begin with speaking about with you, Jonathan, is your your book Genius in Chess, which I would say is tangentially related because um, it touches on sort of what constitutes chess talent. And you have this famous thing in there called the Levitt Equation, which we'll get to. But why don't we begin, Jonathan, by if you could just discuss a little bit what what piqued your interest in in this topic of uh, chess talent? Well, it's um, I mean, plenty of chess players write about chess openings and end games and their games, and I my my books on chess, um, my two main books on chess have been about other things. Uh, in Secrets of Spectacular Chess, I look at the question of aesthetics. And in genius in chess, I, I look at the question of talent and the inner workings of the chess, play, chess playing brain. Um, I've always been interested in psychology, and um, although I've not studied it officially, I've certainly read quite a bit about it. And and um, I just that there wasn't such a book on the market, and I wanted to explore that subject. And I. I try to do it in a light and kind of fun way. Um, there's there's a kind of essay at the start of the book about various questions relating to chess talent and what it is, how you define it, what is genius, what is um, ability, what is, you know, how to define all of these terms, um, originality, creativity, all of that. And and then the, the second half of the book kind of deals with an array of tests where readers can try and uh, gorge their own um, ability by seeing how they do compared to other people um, on on puzzles and um, questions which, I mean, the idea is that they don't involve knowledge of chess, but they just try to test your, your raw talent. Uh, whether, whether that is actually possible is another question, uh, and to some extent, it succeeds, I think, and, and, and the book can give readers a, a good idea about how talented they are. But, of course, it, it's, not a, it's not a proven science. Um, you mentioned the Levitt equation. That is a bit of fun, really. It's, it's a light-hearted um, light equation. I, I, it, the equation states that um, your chess rating will be less than essentially um, 
10 times your IQ plus a thousand, your, your rating in ELO points that is. So, so for example, if your IQ is a hundred and you're of average intelligence, it's saying that your chess rating will be less than uh, 2000. Um, if your IQ is 180 and you're a sort of world-class genius, it's saying your chess rating will be under 2800. Um, it obviously depends on how much you study the game and that's why there's a less than a symbol rather than an equals. Um, it's the kind of limit um, of how far you can go based on, on, on how, how smart you are. But as I say, it's very lighthearted. It's just put there as a, as a bit of fun. Um, to what extent it, it captures anything, I don't really know. Um, it's not scientifically analyzed or tested, but but it's plausible. I mean, I think um, I think it, it is true that the, the people that reach 2800 are geniuses with an IQ of that kind of level, 180 odd. And um, an average person probably would struggle to get to more uh, to, to master level i think i think you have to be fairly bright to to, to get to master level so uh, i don't know i mean i'll let others judge I, I don't want to take it too seriously though i mean it's obviously a little bit controversial anything to do with iq is controversial and it's uh, it, it was put out there when i wrote the book in the 1990s as a bit of fun and um yeah, it obviously stimulated a bit of controversy even then, even before the age of Twitter and Facebook and all of that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've been I've been cringing a little bit just hearing you discuss it because I can uh, I can almost see the the mob with the pitchfork forming. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, exactly, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so we should say it's lighthearted. Don't you know? Don't don't sue Jonathan or flame him. Um, we should also say, that, of course, I've interviewed uh, cognitive scientists like uh, Dr. Christopher Shabri and uh, Vishnu Srikumar, and um, um, they've both said that uh, the the current data suggests that there is a correlation between IQ and um, and uh, chess ability. It's a, I believe uh, Christopher Shabri said it's a mild but persistent correlation. Um, so he's not. So Jonathan's not uh, speaking totally out of left field, but it's it's all in in good fun. So I have to ask Jonathan, hearing you discuss this, like. What was your most uh, sort of memorable uh, backlash from from having written uh, this um, this uh, hot take? Uh, it wasn't too bad. I mean, as I say, it was it was fortunate. It was before <laughs> written before the age of Twitter and Facebook, so I didn't get uh, flamed or anything like that. But um, yeah, obviously, a lot of people um, thought it was nonsense. Um, a lot of people feel uncomfortable discussing IQ in any way whatsoever. Um, there, there were, yeah, I mean, it, there wasn't any serious uh, backlash from it other than, you know, just some people having a go at me on occasion about it. But uh, yeah, I'm tough okay. enough, old enough and ugly enough not to be too bothered by any of <laughs> right. that. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear it wasn't uh, too serious. And of course, the main thing that IQ measures is your ability to take an IQ test. And the main thing that chess measures is uh, your ability to compete in this game. So, you know, uh, performing in both of them well, to me, doesn't doesn't surprise me, you know, irrespective of like any grander implications for what it means about like your life skills or, you know, your human potential. It's not surprising that someone who can do well on a test like that measuring 
or attempting to measure sort of cognitive processing would also do well in a game that in a way measures uh, cognitive processing. But uh, but Jonathan, whether fortunately or unfortunately, we're going to go a little deeper on this topic because um, we've got a question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast, Evan Rosenberg, who I've known for a long time. So thank you for the support, Evan. And Evan writes in and asks, um, he says, uh, since the publication of Genius and Chess, the idea of quantifiable measurements of intelligence like the IQ has been expanded on by the introduction of more qualitative measures like Gardner's multiple intelligences for instance. So number one, have you considered replacing the IQ in the Levitt equation with any other numerical composite that would represent some other measurable form of intelligence? Um, and there's like three questions here. Should I keep going, Jonathan? Uh, no, let's deal with them one by one. Um, I okay. haven't. Is the, the answer to that is I haven't. As I said, it, it was just a bit of fun. I think Evan's question is, is, is intelligent and, and well thought out. It's, um, it's very true that intelligence is just a single, in IQ terms, is just a single number, whereas intelligence is multifaceted. There are many aspects to it. And it's fairly clear to me um, that ch chess talent picks on certain aspects of intelligence, but not all of them. And I think there will be correlations between chess ability and certain things within intelligence but perhaps which will be stronger than, than the correlations between chess ability and other aspects of intelligence so for example spatial reasoning and logic will be well correlated with chess ability i suspect but uh, other things might not be like emotional intelligence or other forms of um you know i, I i'm not to be honest i haven't really been following the psychology too closely since I wrote the book. I did read up about quite a lot of this stuff 25 years ago, but I've not stayed in touch with it. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I'm not in a position to do so. But, but in general, I would say that chess is fairly strongly correlated with certain aspects of intelligence, but not others. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, just to to complete Evan's question, although I understand um, your hesitance, this is a book you wrote a long time ago. Your chess is not even your career these days, and um, as, we're not cognitive scientists to begin with. But you know, I, I do. I've, of course, I, as I mentioned to you offline, I only picked up Genius in Chess in the past week or two, and I've enjoyed it. But I've seen the Levitt equation come up in sort of the uh, the chess. Um, conversation over the years. So I know it did make a bit of an imprint. Um, so anyway, to finish up Evan's question, he asks, uh, would you want to subject the Levitt equation to cultural scrutiny, like the argument that IQs are biased or the new pool of unrated chess players without any formal tournament experience, who, but who have achieved uh, impressive online ratings? I guess the answer is simply no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a yeah. bit of fun. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and as I've mentioned many times on the show, I do think that what Evan alludes to, all of this, all these new entrants into the chess world, particularly adult uh, chess players and the um, increased ability to measure sort of uh, improvement with uh, both uh, the online ratings and, of course, with puzzle ratings and obviously with good old regular OTB ratings. Um, there's a lot of uh, fertile ground for research. Again, as Dr. Fishnu Srikumar and uh, Dr. Christopher Shabri both said, it's really a matter of uh, someone 
more qualified than us, uh, you know, uh, putting, you know, finding the funding or the energy or both to sort of uh, answer these questions about what, what kind of improvement is possible and what correlates with chess skill and all that stuff. But hopefully we're in early days of uh, figuring this out. But I did, uh, Jonathan, so we'll leave it there with the straight up intelligence conversations, uh, IQ conversations, I should say. But I did want to hear the story that you told in Genius in Chess because you opened the book discussing uh, Grandmaster Alexei Shirov, of course, uh, legendary player was perennial top five player in the 1990s into the early 2000s, uh, wrote a classic book called Fire on Board, a uh, famous swashbuckling attacking style. Um, and he stayed at your house and you got a chance to analyze with him. And you, you talk in the book about sort of um, you're trying to gauge the difference between you a 24, 2500 grandmaster, and he a world class grandmaster. Could you could you share a little bit about those experiences, Jonathan? Yeah, I also went to stay with him in Spain, um, a place called Tarragona, um, on the beach. Uh, Sounds great <laughs> for, for a week, and it's just as well I took my chess set because he didn't have one. Um, he, he he kind of walked around analyzing positions blindfold all the time, and occasionally used his computer. Um, yeah, he he was on a different planet to me in terms of ability. I mean, he just could do things in his head that I simply couldn't do. Um, in 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 genius in chess, I talk about you know some differences that might make up the two hundred point rating difference between us, and I, I think I talk about fifty points of it being maybe opening knowledge, fifty points being end game knowledge, fifty points being general fitness. Um, and 50 points being better sporting motivation or whatever. And, but I think more than that is the talent um, differential. I think uh, my, my final conclusion on the subject was that no matter how hard I worked at chess, I was never going to be as good as him, um, nor others who were better than him, like Kasparov. Um, that you just you just can't cannot compete if the brain is so different i mean i've i've yeah. also i've spent time with kasparov as well um, many years ago and his brain works in a in a different way to most people's i mean he, he just remembers everything um he just knows lots of information and seems to just recall it instantly and we've seen perhaps recently magnus carlsen recalling various game being shown game snippets and recalling exactly the the game it was played it was from 1994 and in the game Anand versus Timon or whatever um and he just remembers everything and my brain just doesn't work like that I think um my memory capacity is way lower um I've not got a bad memory I'm, I'm not you know I'm, I'm probably above average slightly um, with things like memory, but I'm not outstanding. And I think to be the world champion or to be 2,700 plus or to be kind of up there with these guys, you, you do have to have a particularly well-functioning brain. Um, it may be something to do with synaptic connections. It may be, I don't know what it is, but just like some some people are taller than others, I think some people have better brain functioning than others and um it's not really a fair competition between an average person and somebody like gary kasparov and i i don't think an average person however hard they work 
however long they they try, um, is ever going to be on the same level as uh, Kasparov. Um, it's just not it's just not humanly possible uh, for 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 an average person to do that. You, you've got to be exceptional to be um, at that level in chess and. It's. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying anything surprising here. I think it's intuitively obvious to most people, but it, it becomes very clear when you get to know these people that they are very different to normal people. Um, they are, of course, hardworking at chess, and they put a lot of effort in, and um, over an extended and long period. Um, but it's more than that. It's, it's it's the combination of hard work, determination, motivation, persistent motivation for years and years, plus outstanding natural ability. That I mean, without all of those factors, you just don't don't hit the top. And um, t if, if I look back on my career as a player, I mean, I was fairly talented. I, I, I you know, I, I'm. I, I was capable enough to reach grandmaster level, but I didn't have the, the tool bag, um, the equipment in my tool bag to to, to get to 2800. There was no way I could have done that. Um, I, I, I just don't think it was possible. I could have worked harder. I could have been a little stronger than I was. I could have been more efficient. I could have been more motivated. I certainly could have been fitter and healthier and had more energy if I'd trained in those in in that way. Um, there are all, all sorts of ways I could have been a bit better, but I don't think I I could have been two hundred points better than I was. Um, I just yeah, I just don't think it was possible. So I'm not. Uh, I have no regrets. I mean, you know, being involved in chess is is a worthy thing to be, even if you're not number one. Even if you scrape into the top thousand or the top hundred, <laughs> which perhaps I did at one point in the peak of my career, um, I, I feel I, I made some contributions to chess. Um, but it, it wasn't as as an out and out champion player. I, I was just a talented, quite good player. But you know, I think um, the books I wrote, the teaching I did, um, some of the problems I composed were all contributions to chess, um, as well as some of the games I played. So I feel, you know, I, I spent many years in the chess world and I feel I made some contribution to it. But um, obviously, as a player, it was very minor compared to some of the great people we're, we're discussing, like Kasparov, Carlson. Shirov and various others. Um, they're, they're the real giants and geniuses of chess. I, I'm, I was just a bit player. Yeah. Well, again, everything um, uh, everything is relative. You know, there's only only sixteen hundred grandmasters or whatever it <laughs> whatever it is. So um, anyone listening probably feels the, the same way about you and of course this is a topic that's come up a lot on the podcast i'll never forget uh grandmaster patrick wolf when he was talking about working on uh Vishianin's team just talking similarly about how he very quickly realized he was uh in the presence of a god <laughs> he just it was just yeah. a, a totally different uh scenario than than his you know top in the u.s level chess talent um 
But I do want to, Jonathan, I want to get more into your, your chess background, what, what you did do to, to get to the impressive level that you attained. But, uh, but first, I want to take a break and uh, hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by aimchess.com. If you haven't checked out aimchess.com by now, what are you waiting for? What aimchess does is it collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you actionable advice of how to improve your game. It might be to work on a specific opening or to get better at end games or improve your time management or whatever it may be. And then it gives you related puzzles to help you improve that specific skill. They are constantly improving the site. They recently added blindfold tactics, time management training, common checkmate patterns. So there's so much to do there. If you decide to subscribe, be sure to use the promo code PERPETUAL30. Details are in the show notes for aimchess.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And Jonathan, I did do a bit of digging into your career. So I already know that you you learned chess at the age of eight and then really started playing uh, at the age of uh, 13. Um, You've done a couple interviews. Shout out to the Chess Pit podcast. And you did one on uh, chessbase.com. Um, discussing your background, but but one thing I didn't hear you talk about that much was just how you got good at chess, which is kind of what everyone wants to know. So once you did start playing at thirteen, were you like a book person? Were you like a playing all the time person? What what contributed to to your ascension up the chess ranks? Do you think? Okay, I was fairly serious about chess. I did read books um, every school holidays. I had a a plan of reading two or three chess books um, and I combined that with a fair amount of playing uh, the weekenders and what was available to, to a, a junior in London at the time. Um, so a combination of playing quite a lot, taking it fairly seriously, reading and being fairly determined. I mean, I, I started at 13. I would say it was yeah a balanced mixture of reading and playing that got me better. Um, I do remember as I pushed forward, um, I did start to take notes on my games and to to treat my, I kind of treated my thinking as a kind of work in progress and I wanted to get it right and I wanted to improve it and I wanted to learn skills and of course identify uh, where things went wrong when they did go wrong. I was very self-critical. Um, I think one of the earliest books I read was by Botvinnik, and that may have had an influence on me <laughs> because he's fairly serious and heavy, heavy-minded. If you like, um, you know, you've got to take chess um, as a s- serious business, and um, and it's important. And I, I guess I, I, I imbibed some of that at a unnaturally young age of maybe 14, 15. And um, it influenced the way I approached the game. And yeah, I I was quite studious. Um, I think, I mean, uh, 
it's difficult to recall exactly what made me jump up the ranks. Uh, I remember going from maybe 14, 1500 strength when I was about 13 to you know, 2000 strength within a year and maybe 2200 strength within three years. And by the time I was 17 or 18, I was pushing on master strength. Um, probably got my actual title when I was about 20. Um, by which time I was at university. So a relatively late start compared to some of the juniors these days. But, but, but um, yeah, I mean, definitely a combination of studying, taking the game seriously, being fairly determined and, and being, okay, I, I did other things as well. I, I, I became a math student at a university and I, uh, but when I finished that, I, I, I did turn chess professional and, and, it took me a while to actually get the Grandmaster title to make that final jump up to about 2,500 strength. Um, but yeah, all, all of that time, I was fairly focused on my game. I mean, I, I think from a relatively early age, in my late 20s anyway, I, I did start doing a lot of teaching, um, juniors, and I taught in a school. And I have a feeling that probably doesn't help you develop as a player. I think it's hmm. a... It's a very separate activity to playing. I mean, the teaching mindset is one where you're trying to help others improve and you're trying to give to other people. And the playing mindset is the complete opposite. You're trying to be a real bastard, basically, and stop <laughs> your opponent doing anything and, and you know, drown out his prospects and slowly finish him off. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's not a giving mindset. It's a taking mindset and a kind of preventing mindset and a... And a mindset where what's what's uh, good for your opponent is bad for you, and what's bad for your opponent is good for you, and and that playing mindset is so opposite to the teaching mindset that I suspect alternating between the two probably just gets you a bit confused. Um, so if you want to be a player, possibly best not to um, mix it with too much teaching, although it's easier said than done because at the level I was at, which was kind of average-ish grandmaster strength um it was difficult to make a living just as a player and teaching brought in um a better income per hour than than playing and indeed than writing so um it was a kind of necessary part of uh, uh necessary part of making a living that i had to do the teaching and um maybe as i say it prevented me from reaching a slightly higher level that i might have reached if I hadn't been teaching, but I don't know. Yeah, it's the constant dilemma for for chess professionals. Although these days, at least you have a few more options uh, in terms of like streaming and stuff like that. Although you know that stuff's probably not great for your chess either, unless you're uh, streaming studying chess, which I know some people manage to pull off. Um, so it sounds like you were fairly self motivated because you you went to you or studying chess hard achieved a lot and you you studied math at one of the oxford colleges is that is that correct yeah it was Magdalen college oxford um I, I think yeah i i i mean i didn't really have a teacher as such at chess I, I, my teachers were my opponents when when i played them and and the authors of the books that i read um i never formally got taught um i don't know if that makes a big difference um possibly Having a good teacher early on can 
set you on a more efficient path to improvement and get you doing the right sorts of things and developing the right sort of habits earlier. And if you if you self teach, um, if you if if you're self taught rather, and you learn it all yourself, um, it, you might not do it by the most efficient path. So I, I would recommend parents of promising juniors to to get themselves a decent teacher. I think that is an efficiency worth having and definitely worth uh, the money, even even if a grandmaster charges. $60 plus an hour or whatever they might charge or $100 an hour, whatever they might charge these days. Um, it's probably worth having the odd hour uh, or one hour once a month or something to, um, yeah, just to, to have a strategy to the way you improve your game, to, to read the right books, to approach things in the right way. And uh, yeah. You don't want you you don't want the grandmaster spoon feeding the junior um, or improver. Of course, adults can improve too. Uh, it doesn't have to be a junior. Um, you don't you don't need to be spoon fed, but but I think some general strategic guidance is is probably worth worthwhile from a teacher. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And of course, these days again, there's also all the online tools for for players to consume. As uh, recent guest uh, Braden Lachlan discussed, uh, so many good YouTube videos that can sort of function as um, a teaching uh, addition, although they can't go over your games the way that a teacher can uh, and explain positional concepts. Um, speaking of which, Jonathan, so you mentioned uh, about Vinick's book. Did did any other books? Were any other chess books particularly formative for you? Uh, I've been quite impressed by Lasker's manual of chess. I thought uh, Lasker was very clear thinking about the game. Um, Fisher's 60 memorable games, obviously, was something that came across my desk. Um, the classics, yeah. As 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 did um, as it probably did for most most people of my generation. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I read quite widely. Um, books by John Nunn and uh, I, I developed an interest in endgame studies and um, the the art of chess quite early I suppose um, so I've always you know looked at those kind of things uh, from an early age or teenage years anyway onwards so yeah I, I probably yeah you sorry, sorry was just going to say, you, of course, you and David Friedgood write at length uh, in Secrets of Spectacular Chess about your affinity for endgame studies and sort of uh, break down the different components of uh, what can make um, an endgame study pleasing or, or um, unique. Um, endgame study, of course, being a, a composed position with a um, with one discrete solution. Um, so a, a great calculation method as well as a, a way to sort of just appreciate the beauty of chess as uh, Tim Crabbe um, discussed when he discussed the, the Babson task on, on this podcast. So it's a huge rabbit hole that one can, can go down um, if one wants, but also just a great training tool. So w what piqued your interest in endgame studies and, and how much of, of your chess success do you attribute to sort of um, being interested in, in that, uh, that sideline of chess early? Oh, it's a tricky question. Um, I found them very beautiful and I, I, they just appealed to me. So I, I naturally gravitated towards them. I think it's, it's more to do with the way my mind works. I'm more of a mathematician than a, than a linguist. Um, so I, I kind of 
analyze logically quite well um but my ability to kind of absorb broad information is probably no more than average but my, my ability to analyze logically is is pretty good um so end game studies kind of fit in with that they're, they're deep and they're analytical and they're um it, it's a it's a single line of thought um which has to go quite a long way um so i kind of naturally gravitated it to towards it because of the way my mind works i think to what extent it made me a better player probably to be honest with you not that's it probably didn't make that significant um a contribution to my chess um i think it it helps a little bit with analysis and the ability to kind of think clearly and analyze the end game but it's only a small part of chess um there are so many other parts of chess like opening knowledge positional ideas general decision making in unclear situations where you can't just be logical and, and get everything sorted in the same way that you can with an endgame study um so but you know it's not all about i mean it, it isn't all about just how good you get at chess i mean chess is more than that i mean there's an art to the game there's a history to the game there's a culture to the game um whether you're a 1600 player or 1700 player or 2400 player it's not everything i mean it's also about how much you enjoy chess what you get out of it whether it it helps your brain think whether it gives you good feedback uh, there's so many benefits you can you can get from chess um which are independent really of how strong you are um so yeah i mean being a competitor and being really motivated to score points is one thing and being able to appreciate watching games of chess or chess problems or studies is another thing and in in the book secrets of spectacular chess we me and david friedgood develop a theory and outline our theory of chess aesthetics which basically looks at four elements um depth paradox flow and geometry and we try to analyze the beauty of practical chess and the beauty of problems and the beauty of studies in terms of those four elements and i think um well the book's been well received we probably did a pretty good job and um I think it's one of my major contributions to chess was was jointly writing that book with David Friedgood and uh, it's full of beautiful positions really lovely fascinating little studies and problems and I think anybody with a love for chess will will really enjoy that book if they if they get hold of it and want to look at the positions in there I've tried to make it fun to read and and a bit more lively uh, than just a dry account of um some chess positions it, it's got a bit of text to it and a bit of um a few stories in it and uh, it's um yeah I, I i think it's a good piece of work it's probably my main contribution to chess if truth be told um was writing that book genius in chess was a lesser book i think secrets of spectacular is, is probably a more significant work yeah, it's a great book. I know it's been recommended a few times on the podcast, um, and I, I enjoy it as well. Again, should mention for listeners, I think what you said about uh, you know chess improvement not being the be all end all. 
um, is, is important, and but also should warn that if you do pick up Secrets of Spectacular Chess, um, if you're rated below 1,800, don't expect to get a lot of the puzzles right. They're uh, they're they're extremely challenging. But as as Jonathan says, the, he deconstructs the you know what makes this this puzzle unique, what makes it appealing, what what gives you that sort of aha feeling when you get it. Um, so it's something certainly that all chess players. Uh, you, with some some work can appreciate it so definitely um i agree it's a, a great contribution um to chess so you mentioned you have a, a mathematician's mind jonathan and obviously you you studied math in in college and we'll, we'll get to your your current career um in time but i'm curious i and i know you pursued chess and taught chess out of uh university did did you ever take a proper job did you did you ever work um <laughs> Out of chess and out of uh, betting? Um, not really. Um, I, I've never right. really been employed uh, as such. I've always been self-employed, except for um, a few months, maybe almost a year, when I worked for Kasparov Chess. Um, it was a startup company, and I, I was I was working as a writer and a journalist, essentially. And my boss was uh, Mig Greengard, my immediate boss. He, he, he was the one that was telling me what to do. And uh, his boss was Kasparov. And um, so that was the chain of command. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I traveled around reporting on certain tournaments. Um, I reported on uh, the Kasparov-Kramnik match um, in London and was liaising with the with the Kramnik camp in fact to to get their feedback on the games after they were played um i, I did various writing things i it was it was an interesting year but and it, it's the only year i've ever actually been paid a wage as <laughs> such um, that's never, impressive never, never had a job I'm, I'm 58 now and i've never never really been paid a wage as such but uh made my living one way or another um in chess until I was about 40 and betting on cricket essentially um, in the last uh, two decades. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I want to hear uh, the story of how you got into betting on critic and then on cricket, excuse me. And then of course, to, to discuss your newest book, but first let's take one more break to hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to quiz you and make sure that you remember whatever tactical patterns or opening sequences that you're working on. They have a huge catalog of great books from top flight authors, both for purchase. And if you check for their short and sweet courses, you can find tons of free content. Speaking of free content, Chessable, of course, has also recently launched an adult improvement focused chess podcast called How to Chess with yours truly hosting it. Check for it on Chessable's YouTube channel, and you can also subscribe on the podcast platforms. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, 
And we are back. So, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you the same question that people used to ask me many years ago, which is, how does one become a professional gambler? Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I kind of drifted into it. Um, when, when I was 40, I, I got um, this medical problem called scleroderma, which... Um, it had a fairly sudden onset and my energy was vastly reduced suddenly. It, it came back a bit after that, but initially it was a little bit scary. Um, anyway, it was it was fairly clear from what the doctors were saying that traveling around playing chess tournaments was was going to be too challenging to continue doing and I needed to find some other way of, of making a living. And um, I just was aware that people would doing something called arbitrage, which is essentially placing two bets on opposite outcomes in such a way that you make a small profit, whichever outcome occurs. And I was at home, I, I have, I, I've always had an interest in cricket since my grandfather taught me the joys of the game when I was a small child. Um, and yeah, I just noticed that, that these so-called arbitrages popped up from time to time while you watch cricket and while you were looking at the odds at the, at the bookies. And surprisingly often you had the opportunity to make a small amount by, as I say, placing, spotting some abnormal, um, yeah, some, some basically uh, some strange situations in the betting market where, where these opportunities have popped up. So having noticed this, I kind of spent a little while looking into it further and and started betting and I, I found I was able to actually make a little bit. Um, at first it was very slow, but I, I then developed other methods as well as arbitrage and started to sort of understand ways of analyzing cricket situations. In some ways, looking at it like a chess player would, analyzing ahead, imagining what was likely to happen in the next few overs and how the game might develop. and, and a, picking up on critical turning moments in the game where where the kind of the odds were out of kilter with the reality of what dynamically was likely to happen in the immediate future and i i kind of developed a few methods and the the pattern recognizing chess brain maybe helped me do that i'm not sure exactly but but within a year or two i was actually making a reasonable living at it and within five years i was making a very good living at it so um yeah, much better than the living I was making in chess, mm. to be honest. Um, so, and I've been doing it consistently for the last, yeah, 15 years, doing pretty well. Um, it, it It's not luck, obviously, not not when I've done it for so long and it's been so consistent. It, it's It's got to be uh, some kind of skill. Um, but I... <laughs> I don't know. It's not something for everyone. Um, it, it will appeal to some people doing what I do, and and, and it won't appeal to others. And um, it's it, it suits me. Is all I can say. I'm I'm happy doing it. I enjoy it. I find it a little bit of um, I find it quite calming work. It's it's quite suits my mentality. Um, I, I'm not a risk taker. I may be a professional gambler, but I hate being exposed to risk. 
and probably that's what makes me quite good at it. What, what about you, Ben? What Was your gambling stock market related or some other form? Well, I've been there and done that. I didn't have success in that endeavor, um, but I was a professional poker player, as a lot of chess players have been and are uh, for, for seven years, um, and definitely some, some similarities. But, you know, I, I know a lot of people who bet sports for fun, and I know some people who bet sports for profit, and it certainly strikes me as a harder to make a go of it than poker was when when I was doing it, especially um, as you've uh, alluded to in interviews, given that uh, these sports books don't like it when when you win, <laughs> which <No>. uh, <laughs> can make it a challenge. And I, you know, I don't want to side, um, a lot of our listeners are not gamblers. So even though it's of personal interest to me, I, I don't feel like we should um, go go too deep on this topic. But I did just want to briefly touch on uh, that that I, I enjoyed, or I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but I appreciated your sort of little defense of uh, of gambling in, um, in contemplating comedy. I know that um, obviously it, it gambling ruins people's lives. I don't want to... Um, I, you know, that shouldn't be sugarcoated by any means, but um, I think of it as another vice that uh, people can either uh, learn to keep at arm's length or possibly uh, derive a career from in, in rare circumstances like your own. Um, I don't know if you would want to touch on that briefly because I'm, I know in the past, like when, when I was interviewing Lawrence Trent, he was looking, you know, obviously. Lawrence also uh, has been known to to place a bet or two, and he was look he was kind of openly looking for people to to bet with him. And I know that for people that without a gambling background, that sounds strange. So I just did want to briefly kind of touch on the fact that some people have that background and have that predilection, but that certainly doesn't mean that I think everyone should be running out to gamble or <laughs> anything like that. Yeah, we don't want to corrupt your audience. Uh, I, I, <laughs> right. appreciate, I appreciate that. There are, there are young juniors and their families watching, and gambling does have a bad reputation. As you say, it does ruin some people's lives. Um, but then again, I mean, I, I compare it in the book, uh, in Contemplating Comedy, a little bit with, with drinking and alcohol. I mean, alcohol ruins quite a few people's lives too. Um, but on the other hand, there is a plus side. There's an industry that creates jobs. There are many hundreds of millions of people who enjoy the pleasures of, of a quiet drink from time to time and there's nothing wrong with that and i think similarly with betting the fact that it ruins some people's lives a minority um is not to be sniffed at and it's true and it's serious but there is also a plus side uh, it, it it adds spice to a lot of people's lives uh, they enjoy watching sport with a little bit of money riding on it and i don't think there's anything majorly wrong with that you can't you can't ban these things on the basis that uh, a small minority go astray and, and ruin their lives with it. I mean, you can't ban alcohol totally. You shouldn't ban gambling totally. You shouldn't ban the telephone because you get crank callers. I mean, <clears throat> although, I mean, that is the approach taken by, say, um, some some countries, but uh, it's not an approach that I think should be taken. I think you've got to You've got to be brave enough to have freedoms and to um, deal with uh, the downsides of those freedoms and try and benefit from the upsides of them. Um, State-imposed rules. I mean, I, I think sometimes they're necessary, probably with this COVID disaster, it was necessary to have some lockdowns and to, to, to stop people being free. Um, it wasn't 
it wasn't after all an individual's an individual wasn't just being free with himself he was it, it, it was having an effect on others if he spread the disease and i understand the motivation for clamping down on freedoms in in that situation and i think it was well motivated and i think it was correct to have lockdowns but in with things like gambling and drinking and possibly even with drugs i think that freedom should be um the default position where you where you allow people to do things and and try to manage the consequences in such a way that that the downsides are limited and the upsides are, are enjoyed but that's my personal opinion yeah and i tend to agree and of course the method you describe of sort of arbitraging different line prices is exact thing that goes on in financial markets um in fact back in the day when i interviewed grandmaster pascal charbonneau who turned his uh, chess abilities into a job in finance, he worked in uh, in arbitrage. Uh, so there are both sort of more accepted uh, methods of arbitraging and uh, the the dark arts that you <laughs> that you practice. Um, but yeah. but it, <laughs> but in any event, um, did just want to touch on that. But let's get to your book. So contemplating comedy, um, I re really enjoyed it. There's a lot of. Uh, it's a very sort of um, wide-ranging book, although predominantly about comedy. Um, and I, I thought it might be fun, Jonathan, if you read a little passage from it. Now, we should say it's not its not um, a chess book, but as when any uh, chess player picks up a pen, um, it, it chess tends to make its way into the work. So <laughs> would, would you be, are you ready to uh, read a small uh, passage, Jonathan? Sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. My, my, my voice isn't, isn't brilliant, but I'll, I'll try. Um, yeah, as you say, it's definitely not a book about chess, but there are maybe three or four pages in the book which relate to um, the game. Um, mainly I'm talking about how chess influenced my development uh, at one point in the book. Um, it's um, Since you have a chess audience predominantly with this podcast, I'll, I'll pick something from the book which is about chess. Let me see. Um, so yeah, in, in this chapter, I'm, I'm talking about the various influences people have as they as their brains develop, and um, the kind of uh, memes and patterns that influence us. And I'm talking about how chess influenced me, as an example of that. And okay, so reading from the book now, chess has taught me to have a forward-looking mindset to try to look ahead where you can. It is almost always better to be expecting something than just to do things without any idea of what might happen next. It has taught me a lot about the limitations of my own thinking. You cannot get good at chess without being critical about your thinking. Learning from mistakes does not happen unless you're brutally honest with yourself about where things have gone wrong with your, with your whole thinking process. Chess also teaches you to try to achieve balance and harmony when making decisions under pressure. Years of tournament chess will make you psychologically tough too. You need to get good at thinking calmly and clearly under duress. On another level, you can also learn to appreciate the beauty of chess ideas, which like say music, poetry or art can be a lifetime source of pleasure. I then go on a little bit um, and, and start to give one or two jokes about chess, I'll just quote one of them. There aren't too many good jokes about chess, unfortunately. But... <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. There's one by Milton Jones. I got arrested for playing chess in the street. I said, it's because I'm black, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 
That's yeah. quite a good one. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, yeah, and and what you say in the book about chess teaching you that sort of dovetails to our prior conversation about the fact that you've never had a real job. There aren't there aren't a lot of games you can study in your teens that uh, that can sort of set that path for someone. Um, but chess teaching the uh, sort of um, uh, like you say the ability to be critical of oneself um, is something that if you can apply that across uh, across fields that it can you know you can advance in other fields as well so certainly appreciate that point but I want to talk about sort of the 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 idea of comedy uh, in chess and my I had a couple questions that as I batted this around um, n number one is um, do you think that chess players are funnier less funny or the same amount of funny as sort of the, the general populace in, in your experience, Jonathan? Funnier, definitely. Um, no hesitation in, saying inten that. Intentionally funnier. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, one of the things I've missed about giving up professional chess is the company of chess players. Um, I still interact with some chess players from time to time, of course, but not as much as before. And they are... A, they're different to the general public. They're sharper. They're quite intense. They're, I think they're, they're quick. They're very quick-witted, generally. And they're in your face as well, chess players. They're quite aggressive. Um, and I kind, of, I kind of like that. It's, um, as I say, I miss it. And, and, and definitely chess players are, I think, funnier than, than the average uh, non-chess playing. Uh, population. I mean, I've I've known a lot of um, funny people in the chess world. Um, it's difficult to single out names, but I mean, nearly all the grandmasters are, and and strong players and masters and and lesser players too. They they generally tend to be quite witty and 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 fun. I mean, somebody like Tony Miles, I remember being very very funny um, in private. I mean, he 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 was a very witty guy. Um, somebody like Nigel Davies is is a funny. I, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter or Facebook. Yes, I do. Yeah, he's very funny sometimes. Um, and Nigel Short can be very funny. Um, they're, they're, you know, as I say, nearly all of them can be quite funny when they want to be. And um, but but those three uh, stand out in the English chess world. I mean, I remember coming across some Americans who were quite funny too. Yasasaro and. Uh, was a great raconteur back in the 1990s. He used to tell long stories and, and sort of, he was very charming, very witty, um, good company. Um, I haven't seen him or spoken to him for ages, but uh, I, I remember some of the jokes he told me uh, from 30 years back. So yeah, he was, he was, uh, I think he's a natural choice for a good commentator on, on chess. He's, he's quite charming. Yeah, uh, especially with all, with all the stories he has um, on yeah. top of uh, yeah, um, yeah. And I personally got to give a shout out to two friends of the podcast, Ben Feingold, who I thought of when you described his people being sort of in your face with uh, with their humor. <laughs> ben, ben Feingold goes for a high volume approach, but <laughs> I'd say a decent decent percentage, a good enough percentage of his jokes land. And then I got to got to uh, shout out my funniest German in the world, Jan Gustafsson. Um, so yeah, so, so many funny, funny chess players. Um, and again, you've told, you've touched on this story in your interviews with, uh, chess base and the chess pit, but, um, could you, 
uh, I know that this uh, contemplating comedy was a project uh, born by the quarantine, basically um, <laughs> born by you're not being able to bet on live cricket without live cricket happening. But how long had this these sort of questions about the nature of comedy and what makes a joke funny? How long had these questions been rattling around in your head? And like, when did you know that this was going to be a book? Yeah, difficult question to answer. I don't know precisely. Um, I know that when when quarantine happened, it was quite sudden. I, I was working on the Pakistan um, twenty twenty cricket uh, competition, and I was doing games every day, and it just suddenly stopped because of COVID uh, in midway. And suddenly, all around the world, there was absolutely no cricket for for months on end, and. Um, so I, I didn't uh, have my usual activity to keep me busy. And it took me a few weeks before I settled down into writing a book. But once I made that decision and once I got started, it came out pretty quickly. Um, it was there waiting to come out, I guess. Over the last decade or so, I'd, I'd been taking a few notes and um, jotting down a few funny lines and a few other thoughts that I thought were interesting, um, either funny or interesting. And uh, once I, I didn't know the structure of the book when I first started it, and um, it kind of evolved as I wrote it. But it, as I say, it was there wanting to come out. I had plenty of ideas to. I, I didn't find it difficult to sort of come up with stuff to write about. Um, so it must have been. I'd had the idea of obviously writing a book some years back, but never, never really got to it. I never had the time to focus on it until um, until COVID struck. Um, what the motivation was behind it, I'm not entirely sure. Um, in, in maybe in the back of my mind, I was, I was writing this book for my son. Maybe I'm not sure. It's all too subconscious. I don't don't really have access to, to the inner workings of my own brain, even. So, um, yeah, I mean, I hadn't really brought up my son. Uh, he'd he'd been brought up by his mother, and we'd separated when when Nicholas was two. And perhaps the book is some kind of subconscious way of communicating something to him that I, I'd kind of not been able to do as a father in a normal way. Um, perhaps that's part of the subconscious motivation behind the book but i definitely wanted to write and yeah i'm glad i did i think i've, I've produced something that was worthwhile there and um it wouldn't have happened without without covid so <laughs> to that small extent i'm i'm grateful for the break from my my normal betting activities and, and and that i've managed to produce something with it with that time but um it's for others to judge how good it is. I mean, it, it hasn't sold in large numbers yet, but then I haven't really been, hasn't been out that long and I haven't really done any marketing or paid for any adverts or anything. So at the moment, it's just kind of making its way around the chess world a little slowly. And um, hopefully it will go beyond that uh, in due course. Um, once it gets uh, properly published in America, that will help. I'll start maybe doing a bit more advertising and uh, try to promote the book uh, with a bit more energy and gusto than I have so far. So far, I've just done a little bit on Facebook and Twitter uh, amongst people that I already know, and uh, that's probably not enough to sell it in, in its thousands. Um, it's been a few hundred so far. Yeah, well, like you say, um I, the launch, I think, in the U.S. will help. Is there is there a timeline on that, Jonathan? Um, there's a chap, uh, 
chap who's trying to get it sorted. Um, I'm hoping it will be within a couple of months. I mean, it's available now in the US as a hard copy. It's just um, you might have to wait three or four days for the post and um, you might be charged about three or four dollars more uh, because it's probably finding its way from England um, one way or another uh, before you get it. Whereas in a couple of months time, hopefully it'll be printed in the USA and, and available slightly cheaper and quicker. But I think you can get it for under $20 already on Amazon in the UK in, in the US so it's not it's not unavailable and of course you can read it on Kindle from anywhere in the world uh, yeah already. I was gonna gonna ask about that with people myself included love their Kindles so um, cool well it's been uh it's been a pleasure Jonathan um but before we let you go do you have any I'm, I I know you've had so many brushes with top players, as you've alluded to in your writing and, and in this conversation. But do you have any favorite stories that that the chess world should hear about your your encounters with uh with your fellow grandmasters? Hmm. Um. Nothing that really uh, springs to mind in terms of sort of outright funny or um, really memorable. Um. I mean, obviously. Um. I found it fascinating dealing with Kasparov when I did. Um, I played him in a simul as a child. Um, I mean, he's about the same age as me. He was. He wasn't. I was about eighteen, and he was uh, maybe a few months older. Um, and that was a draw. I seem to remember he was dealing mm. with tw twelve top English juniors, and this was just before he was. I think he was playing Korshnoi or something at the time. Um, and then I played him an, a, an exhibition game when he'd just finished off Nigel Short in the World Championship. It, I was one of the commentators at that match and and he played me an exhibition game um, where he, he beat me fairly easily, unfortunately. And after that, uh, I had further dealings with him in, when I wrote a website promoting his great predecessor's books. Um, and uh, he used to phone me fairly regularly with kind of some analysis that he wanted put up on the website and we discussed uh, the way that website was going and he, he was yeah he phoned me every week for a, for a few months um which was very interesting i mean just getting an insight into the way his brain worked which as i say is very different from from normal people i mean i wouldn't describe him as a particularly nice person you know, he was, he was <laughs> He was, but he was, he had his own charm and he was certainly very memorable to deal with. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you're being diplomatic. Um, would you describe him as funny is the big question though? Funny? No. Um, <laughs> intense, very mm -hmm. aware, very lively. Um, but yeah, no, he was preoccupied with, with his own concerns, I would say. And um uh, fascinating to deal with in, in that he was just so um, different to normal people but but um, he, yeah he, he wasn't uh, charming in the way he, he, he wasn't at that time he was an out and out chess player he was the world champion he was fending off everyone else he was trying to keep ahead of the pack he wasn't the politician that he is now he's, he, nowadays he's probably more amenable to, to others and more accessible at that time he was um, it was a little bit different. Um, so I, he, his priority wasn't to be liked, it was to be feared and to, to stay ahead of everyone else. And 
He did that. I mean, the, the guy's amazing. 20 years yeah. at the top of the world ranking list. 20 years. That is just phenomenal. I mean, you, you, you just, in no other sport, I think, has, has anyone done that, um, as far as I know. And it's a phenomenally long time to be number one. And the mindset that that kept him at the top, he was ruthless and tough and hard and you know, tough as old nails. I mean, to, to stay that good and that motivated for that long, um, I, I think we have to take our hats off to him. I mean, was he the best of all time? Possibly. Um, I think the only real contender for for that spot with him would be perhaps Fisher, um, but I think Kasparov was probably stronger. And Magnus Carlsen, uh, since that time, has shown that he's also very much a contender for the, the, the GOAT position, the greatest of all time. Um, so clearly Carlsen hasn't done it for as long as, as Kasparov, but he's shown he's on that kind of level and uh, he's already been on that level for some years. So. I think Carlson is, um, yeah, the only player who, who can really compete with Kasparov for the, um, arguably for Fisher too, uh, for for this greatest of all time position as as it as we stand at this point in time. Of course, the future may bring in on another one. Um, yeah, we've got a, a world championship match coming. Uh, when is it? In November? Is that right? Um, yep. So, what do you think? Uh... As a, as a gambler, how do you assess Carlson's uh, odds? Yeah, I think Carlson is strong favorite. Um, Nipo Man is talented. He's creative. He's a little bit inconsistent. He has good and bad patches. Um, if he finds his form, it'll be um, an interesting contest um, because... He has got a good track record against Carlson. He's one of the few to have a good track record against Carlson. So it is possible that it will be a close match if Nepo is at his, on the top of his game. But um, you've got to favour Carlson. He's, he's, as I've just said, he's probably the greatest of all time, and along with Kasparov. And the, the two of the same generation, they're about the same age, I believe. And I, I personally, I think it's unlikely that Carlson will lose to somebody of his generation. I think the only person that's going to take the title of Carlson will be somebody much younger than him in, in a few years' time. So I, I would heavily favor Carlson overall. But as I say, it's possible that Nipo will, will, will put up a real fight. If it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on, uh, on um, Nipo unless the odds were three to one or maybe four to one, then I might be interested in in a small bet, but I wouldn't bet too much on it. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think Carlson is uh, definitely justifiably the favourite, and um, I would expect I'd expect Nifo to take the odd game off Carlson, um, but not. I mean, if he takes more than one game off Carlson, it will be a very interesting match. Um, but if 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 not, I think Carlson will probably win two or three or four games and uh, win reasonably comfortably. Wow. Maybe 3-1 three, three or something like that with a few draws. That, that's okay. what I would expect. But, but yeah, it's sport. Anything can happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, Carlson's priced at something like 75%. And, you know, seems reasonable to me. <laughs> I agree. So, and that means he can lose. Um, 
All right. Well, uh, Jonathan, it has been a real pleasure. Um, so listeners, whether wherever you are, can grab the Kindle version of Contemplating Comedy. And I definitely uh, echo Jonathan's uh, endorsement of Secrets of Spectacular Chess as well. Um, you are on Twitter. Um, how else can people reach you if they're inclined, if, if there is another way? Yeah, they're welcome to... Um to Twitter, uh, to message me on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, I'm reasonably open to friending people on, on Facebook. If they want to friend me, they'll, I'll probably say yes, unless they're very strange. Um, <laughs> you can email me directly um, as as well through... Um, should I should I be giving my email? I'll just, on, I'll just on, put it in. The, I'll just put it in the description. No one's gonna write it down. So, um, yeah, you're, you're but yeah, to... if you're open to that, I'll I'll put all the links uh, for where people can find you. Yeah, I mean, I I do sign copies of my book uh, directly by post for for people if they if they're particularly wanting one. Um, although generally I'm not too keen to do that all the time. It's a bit time consuming to get popped to the post office and whatnot. But so if people can get it through Amazon or, or WH Smith or wherever they get it from, um, or the, the London Chess and, Chess and Bridge shop, I think has got copies of uh, my books. Um, so yeah, I, I prefer it if people buy them the normal way. Um, but yeah, you're welcome to, to email me if you want to sign copy for any or inscribed copy or anything like that. Um, anyway, Ben, it's been uh, really lovely chatting to you, and uh, it's, as I say, an honor to be on your podcast. It's a, a really fine series of podcasts you've done over the years, and uh, I look forward to, well, hearing my own one with you shortly and uh, hearing other people in due course. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. The pleasure's been all mine. Uh, take care. Bye for now. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible, most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show. Did you guys know that there's still people who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast? There's even chess players who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast. So we need to fix that. And the ways to do that include writing positive reviews on podcast platforms or YouTube comments telling friends, all that stuff makes a difference in helping spread the word about the show. But of course, I most of all want to thank people who provide financial support to the show. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So without further ado, I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Heath, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Farhan Thawar, Barasawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsythe, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Sell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, Grandmaster Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, 
Ruben Fisher, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gerson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Ace Baega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio K. Leonfort, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard, Lynn, Brian, Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Chad Hilton, Chess Patser Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Tennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Padilla, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latart Lavoir, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Bihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastio, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Takumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Joe Dosano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emelyanovas, aka Photo Chess, Mark Shaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Blaine, Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited of Switzerland, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Titi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel and publishing empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCagan, Seth Ruzica, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatev Abrahamian, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. 
Thanks to you all for the support, and we will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.